Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. How are Canada's police officers responding to the killing of George Floyd by now former Minneapolis officer who's facing second-degree murder charges? The three officers who were with, wind, were with uh, Kevin Chauvin have also been criminally charged. How do Canada's police officers respond to charges that police treat black Canadians and other minority community members in a racist manner? And uh, what is the view of Canada's police to the calls to disband police services and uh, or to defund their services? The Minneapolis uh, City Council president has called for the actual disbanding of the Minneapolis police. Tom Stamatakis is the president of the Canadian Police Association. He joins us from Vancouver. Tom, thank you for the time. And your members' uh, reaction from across this country, the response to the killing of Floyd George by uh, the now former and criminally charged Minneapolis police officer Kevin Chauvin. What's the reaction been? Well, I think the reaction generally is, uh, not generally, unequivocally, has been that that was a tragedy. And, uh, and I think... You know, what I keep coming back to, and I think what most uh, police officers that watch that happen keep coming back to, is just how unnecessary that seemed to be. In, in a similar situation in this country, if it were to happen, and there were three officers with this Kevin Chauvin, uh, in a similar situation, would do you, do you believe that uh, officers would have removed Chauvin from uh, Mr. Floyd? Or what's the procedure? What would the procedure have been? Well, first of all, I mean, one thing that I think I need to make clear is that police are often responding to incidents that happen in, you know, an uncontrolled environment that unfold very dynamically. And, and it's not always easy to control someone or to control your environment. Having said that, you know, our training in Canada it, it prohibits applying any kind of pressure or targeting the neck, head area, um, in a controlled environment. And so that's one issue is, you know, our training is not to ever put pressure on somebody's neck. The other piece is, and I'd like to think, and my expectation would be that, you know, when you're dealing with someone, if uh, the person is in distress, our training is also to, to, to care for the person, to provide aid. And, and there are ways of adjusting, you know, how you're controlling somebody to make sure that they can breathe properly, that they're in a, in a safe, situation and 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 that's the expectation uh when police are accused of racism and across the spectrum in recent days both in the united states and in this country how does that affect you we have the federal indigenous affairs minister mark miller uh who called a video of a stumbling man in nunavut perhaps you've seen it being hit and knocked down by the door of a moving rcmp truck as disgraceful and dehumanizing end quote and the minister miller is questioning the death of Edmonston, New Brunswick, 26-year-old native woman who was shot and killed by a city police officer during a wellness check. And Miller said, I'm pissed, I'm outraged, quote, end quote. And then he added, again, quoting, police serve Canadians and Indigenous people of Canada, not the opposite, end quote. What's your reaction to, uh, to, to what Mr. Miller had to say and what the prime ministers had to say as well? Well, I have a few reactions. I think the first thing I want to say is, look, if, if, uh, and this is specifically related to what's happening in Canada, but we have, if we have a lot of Canadians telling us, and, it, and, and we do, obviously, given the number of people who have been out to protest and who are raising issues in the aftermath of, 
Mr. Floyd's tragic death. Uh, if we have a number of Canadians telling us there are issues, then we, we need to be listening to them and we need to find a way to uh, respond, be, be responsive to their issues, try and address them to make sure that people are feeling like they're included, that they're, they're not being discriminated against and that we're not racializing our interactions with them. So I think that's important and we need to pay attention to that. With respect to the comments from Mr. Miller and other elected officials, I think elected officials, uh, I mean, they're frustrating because elected officials have a responsibility to be measured in their response to respect the institutions that we have in place in this country, including the processes that we have in place in this country to deal with these kinds of issues. Uh, the fact is we live in a democratic country that relies on the, the rule of law to maintain order. And Mr. Miller and the and various governments at different levels represent uh, those institutions. And what's even more frustrating is they are in the position to address many of these, many of the underlying issues that lead to this, these kind of interactions happening between the, the, the public and the police, which by the way, the police are never happy to be involved in them. So we've been calling for better funding for uh, policing in indigenous communities, uh, for policing in rural, remote, remote northern parts of this country for years. Uh, and it's not just this government, but what have successive governments done about that? Um, there are huge issues with respect to funding for capacity, with respect to social services, access to education, to health care, to treatment, all of those kinds of issues. So for, for him to react in that way is a little bit frustrating. I have no issue with somebody watching an incident like that, which is troubling to watch, to ask questions, to have an expectation that the incident's thoroughly investigated. And if it's determined at the end of that investigation that someone did something inappropriate, then the, then the appropriate consequences should come to bear. But to, to, to make comments like that at the outset, I think is unfortunate and unfair uh, to everyone because it, it, it misrepresents what will happen. We have very robust oversight processes in in this country with respect to police conduct issues or issues where someone's injured as a result of an interaction involving the police and we need to let those processes play out and get to whatever the appropriate outcome will be okay you talk about funding needing wanting calling for more funding and on the other side of the spectrum, over the last number of days, we've been hearing a lot of calls for defunding police both in the United States and in Canada. Um, what does that represent to you? You know, again, you know, it's a frustrating, it's frustrating that we get to that. The fact is that, you know, in the last year that we kept the data, I mean, police responded to 12.8 million calls for service in this country. Um, that's calls that people have made looking for help. So it's easy to make a broad statement like, oh, let's defund the police. But who, who's going to respond to those calls for service? C clearly, Canadians are calling the police uh, and, and they need help. And I would argue that the police uh, do an excellent job responding to the needs of Canadians. Yes, uh, mistakes are made. Yes, um, uh, sometimes police officers do things that they ought not to do. But, you know, police officers are people too, and it's, and, and, and it's human beings interacting with human beings, often at the end of a long string of events that lead to a crisis. So instead of focusing exclusively on the police, let's be looking at you know, what happened that led to that crisis in the first place? What happened that led to the police having to interact with a person in any community? Let's look at where the gaps are. Let's look at um, what services weren't available to that person so that, you know, the police would never have been needed to be called in the first place. So 
you know, and, and the other piece to this, of course, is that there's no level of government in this country that's done anything to reduce the demand on the police. In fact, most levels of government have only added to the workload of police, whether it's through new legislation that puts more obligations on the police to do certain things, whether it's around uh, new and better standards with respect to policing, the kind of people we recruit, the type of training that police officers need, uh, all of those things, more oversight, all of that comes at a cost. And it's kind of ironic that at the same time that people are calling for the defunding of police, they're also calling for more training. We need more de-escalation training. We need more training around cultural awareness, which are all important things. And it's arguable that we need those things, but again, they come at a cost. So to make these broad statements about defunding the police, I, I think is is not helpful. What we need to do is say, okay, okay we need to... Sorry, sorry Tom, I'm just running a little short on time. I wanted to ask you this question. When you see police officers injured and killed, as happened during the uh, protests and the rioting in the United States, impact on you, impact on officers, does it make it difficult to keep police officers continuing with their job? Does it make it difficult... Uh, maybe this is a redundant question to attract young, competent police officer candidates. Well, 100%. I think um, whenever a police officer is injured or killed, it has a huge impact on that person's colleagues. We're certainly seeing in the States that many, many police officers are, are deciding to resign. Uh, I know the, the United States has had a huge recruiting retention problem uh, long before this happened. Uh, we have similar issues in Canada. In fact, about 10% of our entire workforce are all eligible to retire, and we're we're all struggling to try and identify, uh, you know, the right kind of people to get involved in policing in terms of new recruits. So it's a huge challenge, and and I think, um, you know, when these protests turn violent, it has a huge impact not just on policing but the, on the entire community and citizens right across the country. And I I'm pleased to see in Canada, and and I encourage, um, you know, continued. The, the continuation of the peaceful peaceful protest, protests we've seen, uh, because I think that's an important part of uh, our democracy and what makes right. our country uh, good. Tom, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you. Thanks. You're welcome. Tom Stamatakis is the president of the Canadian uh, Police Association. The issue of the protests and the um, and the marches and the. Uh, the calls for an end to anti-black racism, and the challenges uh, to police. And uh, we've been speaking with a um, reporter from Global News Radio in Toronto, AM640, several times from the uh, march that's taking place in the city there. What I found interesting was information that came to us from Rasmussen uh, Reports, polling firm, large polling firm in the United States. You know, we've spoken with Fran Coombs, the managing editor of Rasmussen many times. Mr. Coombs is also the former editor of the Washington Times. And Fran, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, I, I look at these numbers, and the, the level of police support in the U.S. is very high, at least for the for the local police. How does this break down? What's the, what's the, what's the view of Americans toward their police forces? Well, I, I don't think there's any question, Roy, that our surveys have shown for years that substantial percentages of Americans... Uh, 67% this past week, it's run up into the 70s per, uh, percentile, uh, support their local police, think their tactics are fine, uh, have no problem. Uh, but there is no question, too, especially given the notoriety of the last few days, uh, that they're more skeptical about uh, how the cops deal with minorities. There's, there's absolutely no question about that, that there's more skepticism than we have seen in the past. 
What's that going to translate to? Well, again, the po- some politicians will try to turn that in. I mean, you've heard this ridiculous defund the police movement that, that's being pushed by a number of Democrats in the country. Uh, but I think the average person, uh, first of all, they're not affected by this, the average suburban voter, if you will. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously people want someone to call if they hear someone breaking into their house in the middle of the night. Yeah. Fran, the other statistic, uh, the 67% I found very interesting. I'm not surprised by it. I asked earlier on the program whether people feel that co- people, uh, the police in this country, uh, deliver, you know, services and, uh, and do their, their business and apply the law, enforce the law in an equitable fashion. And 95% of our callers said, yes, they believe that. There were some reservations, but for the most part, and a strong majority said yes. But he, he, from your, uh, your report and RasmussenReports.com, 27% of Americans now believe that, generally speaking, most deaths that involve the police are the fault of the police officer. That's up 13% from last year and a new high. So that number has virtually, well, actually has more than doubled in one year. Right. Well, I think, I, personally, knowing, seeing these polls, having worked with them for a number of years, I fully expect that number to go down. But we just had this very egregious example uh, of the, the video of the cop who basically killed George Floyd. And it, it, I, I don't know anybody that takes issue with the interpretation that's come off that, that the officer basically killed the guy. A lot of these other cases uh, in Ferguson, in Baltimore, and places like that, they are not nearly as clear. Uh, in fact, it's, it's in the Ferguson case, clearly the guy who was killed was attacking the cop. So nobody is, except radical types, nobody is going to diss the cop in that situation. But we've got a situation here where we have a video where the cop clearly went overboard. And so I think that's what this number is a reaction to. I mean, if we ask this a year from now, I wouldn't be surprised if that 37% dropped 10, 10 or more points. Fran, what about the minority communities in the United States? How do they view police? What's your polling tell you? Well, that's. I mean, there's no question that... For example, one question we ask is, are most police officers racist, okay? So that figure was 10% a year ago. It's up to 16% of Americans now. But you go into, you ask blacks, 26% of blacks think most police officers are racist. Just 11% of whites feel that way. So, I mean, and we've seen that going back to Ferguson several years ago. Um, No question that blacks and whites have wholly different interpretations of what happened who's to blame, and the role of the police. So let me ask you to put on your uh, journalist's hat for a moment. What do you expect will happen? What, what would your, you have so many years' experience as a, as a journalist, a former editor of the Washington Times. What impact will what's happened in the United States over the last two weeks have ultimately on the discussion of race and uh, and how... And, and how it goes forward and what changes may take place. Will things actually happen or will we a year from now, because another news story will have grabbed attention, perhaps the pandemic, be right back where we are now? Yeah, well, personally, I don't see a lot of change coming. I mean, this is one of those things that has been talked to death in America for the last 50 years or more. And, uh, for example, another survey we just did about 10 days ago, we asked, do most politicians play the race card, if you will, bring up racial issues because they want to address real problems, because they just want to get elected. 69% of voters said they just want to get elected. Only 19% of voters think they do it. They bring up racial issues to address real problems. 
that's pretty consistent with that survey going back six, seven years. Every year we get pretty much those same kind of numbers. So people are very skeptical of these politicians that are grandstanding. And people, believe me, I mean, I talk to plenty of people who have real concerns about this rioting and, and looting and everything like that, but they're not going to stand up and say anything because they don't want to be clobbered by some self-righteous idiot. Um, so, you know, what you see in the media is not what most Americans think. It's certainly what the visual and vocal, many of the vocal Americans think. Uh, but a lot of people that disagree are just minding their own business and keeping their mouths shut. What you do at Rasmussen reports that nobody else is doing now, none of the other major polling firms are doing this. You're still doing a daily tracking poll of the uh, job rating, the job satisfaction or lack of satisfaction for President Trump versus President Obama at the same time, in their exactly the same time in their first terms. And if I have this correctly, and I looked at your, your graph, uh, yesterday or the day before yesterday, Trump had a 46% approval rating. At the very same time, four years ago, Barack Obama had a 47% approval rating, so one percentage point apart. If I've got that correctly, that's going to shock a lot of people. Well, actually, it's interesting. Uh, Trump has been has definitely been down during the coronavirus period. He's been running down in the mid-40s, if you will, after generally running for us in the high 40s, low 50s. And he has started to come back. As you said, 46 on Thursday, 48 on Friday, uh, overall approval. Uh, but, you know, just three or four days ago, he was down at 44. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm not surprised by these numbers. And, in fact, some of the other surveys, uh, Gallup, for example, uh, just within the last couple of weeks, had, had Trump at his highest approval rating of his presidency in their polling. Um, so tr actually, our numbers in some cases have been lower than some of the other pollsters when it comes to Trump's overall approval. Um, but, I, you know, he, I don't see Trump losing any of his support among his base over stuff like this. In fact, these riots and things like that are all things that his base detests and can't stand. Uh, and they're not going to be they're not going to be moved away by attacks on the police. No way. OK, one more question for you. Now that Joe Biden officially has the delegate count to become the nominee for the Democrats. Uh, so all the comparisons now going to be Trump versus Biden, Biden versus Trump, who's leading whom? What are you what are you seeing there? What, what should we look for in the next five and a half months before the election? Well, first of all, I was amused. I saw my first article this week uh, in a Washington, D.C. Uh, weekly paper. Uh, in which the guy said basically it was Hillary all over again. It was like Trump's, I mean, uh, Biden's got such a big polling lead already on Trump uh, that it's all over. They forget it. Trump can't get reelected. So I was laughing to myself because I said, here we go again. It's 2016 all over. So you're, you can definitely look, expect to see a lot of articles saying Biden's going to clobber Trump. Trump doesn't have a chance. Uh, Republicans are scurrying away from Trump that kind of thing, uh, but don't believe it. Don't believe it. we got a long time until the election. Okay, you take care of your voice, because we're going to need you again. Okay. <laughs> I'll do the best I can, Roy. Thank you. All right, Fran, thank you for the time. Good talking to you always. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Fran Coombs, managing editor of uh, Rasmussen Reports, a uh, national polling firm in the United States, former editor of the Washington Times. The Alberta government of Premier Jason Kenney with Solicitor General 
Uh, and a, a, a minister of justice, uh, Doug Schweitzer, have declared the province's legal gun owners are not going to become scapegoats for the federal politicians, and that includes Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Public Safety Minister Bill Blair and their arbitrary firearms ban. Um, and they have, Alberta will, uh, through other, among other initiatives, create a provincial firearms advisory committee. Doug Schweitzer, the uh, Minister of Justice and Attorney General for the province of Alberta, is back with us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Minister, good to have you with us. Thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on today. But before I get to the issue of guns, I just have to ask you two questions. One is a developing news story today, and it's on Global News. And that is that Athabascan Chippewa and First Nation Chief Alan Adam is releasing video of what the chief declares was a physical assault by two RCMP officers who he says, and there's a photograph that's very disturbing, slammed his face into the parking lot of a casino in Fort McMurray. The RCMP told the Globe and Mail Chief Adams uh, resisted arrest and the use of force was reasonable. Don't know if you've seen the photograph, if you know the story. If you do, what are your thoughts? You know what, uh there's a conversation going on around the world right now around an interaction with police and uh, the potential for racism in our system. You know, I, I don't have all the details of this file. It has been brought to my attention. I'm going to look into this and, you know, and get to the bottom of what happened in that matter. Okay, so at the moment you're not aware of the situation as it's been reported. I'm, 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 I'm asking for details. I just don't have the details or specifics to be able to meaningfully comment. Uh, other than to you know, just kind of acknowledge that uh, around the world we have a, an immense amount of frustration with how policing has been conducted around the world, and uh, we have to listen to people as well. So let me ask you about that, and I want to get to the guns issue with you, the, the, the firearms issues, and the federal order and council, definitely. But what is your response to what you've just mentioned twice? And that is the global uh, concern about interaction by police with minority communities. Well, I think the biggest thing is we can't put our head in the sand. We have to acknowledge that, you know, we have racism in our society. And, you know, just here this week in Edmonton, we had 9,000 people march on the legislature asking, you know, for us to improve, asking for anti-racism measures, asking for us to be better. And we simply can't put our head in the sand and say, you know, you're, I don't know what you're talking about, but you know, these people have a legitimate concern. I've talked to so many young people. Uh, they're watching what's happening in the United States. They're watching what's happening to their friends here in Canada, even. And they're saying we need to be better. So we're going to make sure that we listen to people uh, and we're going to make sure we engage because you, you can't have confidence of people in police if the community doesn't believe in that the law enforcement is going to be reasonable with them and treat them fairly. They won't come to you with reports for of a crime. They won't come to you. They won't trust you. So we have to make sure that we engage and that we improve the level of dialogue between our police and communities that right now are voicing concern. Yeah. Confidence is such an important word in this particular it, equation, it is. Minister. That's really that, that really is the cornerstone word that progress is going to be built on. Let me ask you about this. When Premier Kelly declares the Trudeau government's arbitrary ban of some 1,500 assault-style firearms, I don't know where the word style comes from, but some 1,500 assault-style firearms to be a case of scapegoating law-abiding gun owners, would you expand on that? What are you going to do? What's the province's plan? Well, the province of Alberta is going to be appointing a chief firearms officer appointed by Albertans that's going to be make sure that we have the real feel for what's happening on the ground here. This took people by surprise. It was a half-thought-out policy by the federal government, and it's just and it's not targeting you know with the gang members that are doing the shootings. It's not targeting the illegal guns that are being used in crimes. Eighty percent of the firearms used in crimes are illegally imported into Canada from the United States. They're smuggled in. 
by organized crime. If we were serious about combating crime, we'd be cracking down on the border. Another thing, too, that we did in Alberta was that we were having delays in getting the, you know, the ballistics testing done on guns to get prosecutions of illegal use of firearms in cases. It was taking the RCMP eight months. We have time limits for when we can bring a case. So we were making the investment to take that over in Alberta for $500,000. $500,000 to make sure we can prosecute our cases in a timely way. That is a smart policy on firearms versus hundreds of millions of dollars, uncertainty uh, for all the law-abiding firearms owners in Canada, and simply a policy that's not going to keep our streets safe. This is downtown Toronto politics that's not playing out for our rural communities, not playing out for other provinces across Canada. What's the Alberta Firearms Advisory Committee's role in all of this? Well, we're going to be asking them to give us advice uh, as for what Alberta's reasonable response should be. Uh, the federal government has indicated that they're planning on bringing in legislation. They're trying to bypass provinces, go straight to municipalities. And we've sent a, a clear message to Minister Blair, Minister Lametti, that Alberta's a no-fly zone when it comes to this you know, type of, you know, just politics of guns. We have to make sure we're reasonable. They have to deal with the province in this. That's the jurisdiction that they need to deal with. They can't bypass us and try and go to some left-wing politicians at the municipal level. No, they bypass Parliament. Well, it, right now, I just think, I can't explain how they just developed this policy. It's not reasonable. You know, they don't respect the division of powers in our country. And again, we'll have to stand up for a provincial jurisdiction in Alberta. Is Mr. Trudeau overstepping his authority? It's a minority government, which has, with the support of the NDP, severely restricted parliamentary business. And oversight of the Liberal government is certainly not what the Canadians decided last October, and certainly not what uh, the people of Alberta and Saskatchewan decided. Well, right now, our, our legislature in Alberta is fully functional right now. I mean, we're, we're respecting social distancing in the legislature by managing numbers that are in there. But we've been there doing question period every day. Uh, we've been in there passing legislation. Parliament and the legislatures of our country are, are foundational institution. They need to operate well. There's no reason why you can't do this in Canada at this stage. And I would encourage you know the people to call their member of parliament and encourage them to get back to work in Ottawa. Yeah, Minister, we're going to be speaking about that in more detail tomorrow. Now, Ipsos polling showed a strong national public support for the ban of assault-style firearms and handguns. What do you make of that? Well, you know, I think that this is politics over good policy uh, in Canada. We have to be smart and make sure that we actually keep people safe. When we're calling on the federal government to use real policy measures that will go after the illegal guns, go after the organized crime elements that are preying on people and, and shooting people in their streets. That's where the focus should be. That's where the investment should go. We said that to the federal ministers earlier this year when all the justice ministers met, and it fell on deaf ears. Here we have a ram-through policy. It's half-baked. We don't even know what these firearms are going to be purchased back for, what that looks like, how much it's going to okay. cost. No details from the federal government. All right. And here we, get, we have a half-policy. Minister Schweitzer, thank you very much for taking the time. It's one of these rushed days, but I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. No, thank you. Doug Schweitzer is the Minister of Justice and the Attorney General for the province of Alberta. So pushback from Alberta to the uh, Trudeau government's arbitrary decision to ban some 1,500 assault-style weapons. Across this country, there have been rallies and there have been marches and they continue and there has been a lot said. And uh, as Glenn pointed out, the march that he's observing has been peaceful, noisy, peaceful, and earlier in Toronto, in Nathan Phillips Square, someone showed up wearing blackface, but the police got him out of there 
or I, I don't know if it was one person or more, but they got them out of there. So the issue is today and uh, going forward, the debate, the talk in this country is about racism, systemic racism, religious intolerance, uh, racism toward black the black community, racism toward the indigenous indigenous community. And uh, joining us is Erwin Kotler. He's the chair of the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. Mr. Um, Kotler, uh, Professor Kotler, is the former federal minister of justice and attorney general, international human rights lawyer. Mr. Kotler, thank you very much for the time. And what's today about as far as you're concerned? What is the, What are these marches? What is the protests? What is all? What does it signify to you? Well, I think uh, George uh, Floyd's uh, killing and, and particularly his last plaintive plea of I can't breathe, um, which you see in the protests, has become a not only message but metaphor uh, for a legacy of uh, institutionalized racism and uh, inequality, a, a standing denial of uh, equal protection and equal treatment under the law. You know, we should appreciate that there are many police killings of uh, uh, African Americans uh, before uh, George Floyd. In fact, in 2014, Eric Garner, when he was murdered, uh, also uttered the words, I can't breathe. But George Floyd's killing has become a kind of a, a, a tipping point uh, for this uh, injustice, a defining moment, a, a galvanizing moment, not only for Black Lives Matter, uh, which first sprang up in 2000. 14 after the murder of Eric Garner at the time, but also the, the whole demands of no justice, no peace, the demands for equal justice and accountability. And it's had a globality about it. It's not only in in U.S., which is the focal point of the protests, and understandably so, but we see it in Canada, we've seen it in the U.K., we've seen it in, in, in France. And that's why I think this is now a, a, a tipping point. And it may not be also unrelated to... Uh, the pandemic. Uh, African Americans, for example, have been disproportionately uh, victimized by the pandemic in terms of the numbers that have died, the numbers have lost their jobs, the numbers of denied access, the access to health care. So all these things uh, converge. And when you had also the assaults on, on journalists and where media are the bearers of witness and essential for accountability, I, I think this also has helped to uh, underpin and, and galvanize uh, the protests. I have an email that I just want to read to you. Um, good afternoon, Mr. Green. As a retired police officer, it really saddens me to see Mr. Floyd dying at the hand of a police officer. For all the good work most police officers do daily to reach out to all communities, this one action has destroyed all of the good work that has been done. Every officer attending police academies, training facilities should be told and reminded every day that being a police officer is a privilege, and police officers must remember it comes with great responsibility, which must be respected every day. And it's signed uh, Richard and uh, former police officer himself, I believe. It's quite an email, uh, Professor Kotler. Um, if you want to comment on that, fine. Otherwise, I want to ask you about racism crossing, as I said before the break, racial and ethnocultural bounds. Are there examples where racism has been successfully addressed nationally in, in any country or any part of the world? And where does Canada fit into the overall issue of having to address racism? Are we, I don't want to use the word doing reasonably well, but where do we fit? Well, I think, you know, this whole notion of a 
um, a, a legacy of, of, of slavery. It is true, though, not as pronounced uh, in Canada as in the United States, but we've also had uh, the same uh, problems regarding institutionalized racism and, and inequality. I recall that as Minister of Justice and Attorney General, which you referenced, one of the first things I did was to establish a national justice initiative, uh, re-racism and hate, and to try to uh, instill that as a whole of, of government strategy. What is important, and you know, you've got that email, read the police, but what, are, what is important here is the, the necessity uh, for moral and, and political leadership, for, for empathetic uh, leadership at all levels of government, you know, federal, uh, provincial, and municipal. I think what's been lacking in the states and has been harmful there has been, you know, any sense of that kind of leadership or empathetic leadership. The fact that two military heroes, uh, General Mattis and General uh, Kelly, both of whom had worked in the uh, Trump administration, had to uh, now critique the president, I see, uh, says it all. And it does, I think, raise the importance of the empathetic leadership at the top. Um, and making the whole issue of combating racism and inequality and, and injustice as a priority, both as a matter of principle and as a matter of policy, and certainly as a manifestation of governmental leadership. Uh, last year, Ipsos Public Affairs did polling for Global News on the issue of racism in this country, and I just want to read you something. Uh, how serious do you consider racism to be in Canada? 32% of our population said it was a fairly serious problem. I'm giving you the two lo largest numbers here. So 32% said it was a fairly serious problem. 37% said it was a minor problem. That's 69% of our overall population saying either it's a fairly serious problem, 32%, or 37% saying it's a minor problem. Where does that place us? Well, I, I think, you know, to, to use some of the parlance of some of the uh, protesters, you know, uh, Canada also has to be uh, woken up to uh, what has been happening um, here in Canada. It isn't just uh, an American uh, phenomenon, though for the reasons I, I mentioned, it's uh, more uh, pronounced in, in the United States, but it does exist here, and uh, we've had our own instances of of uh, disproportionate impacts on indigenous people, on uh, African Canadians, and and the like. Uh, recently, I was involved in a, uh, a protest here uh, out of Montreal to try to get the municipal council uh, to put an end to uh, racial profiling. Because what we found uh, were that indigenous people and blacks were six times uh, more likely than whites uh, to be carded, uh, to be targeted. And so the practices uh, exist here as well, but they may not be as uh, pronounced, they may not be as uh, well-known, uh, but they do require a commitment uh, in order to address and redress it. Do you fear that even after the public outpouring of anger and demand for change, um, do you fear it'll fade as other news, maybe the pandemic sweeps the headlines? Well, you know... Um, when I mentioned about the fact that the I Can't Breathe, this was first uttered by Eric Garner when he was killed back in 2014, and we've had a spate of police killings in the U.S. The names are known to the African-Americans, whether it be uh, Michael Brown or, or Lachlan McDonald, or more recently, Ahmed Arbery or uh, Brianna Taylor, the last two uh, really 
resulting just before uh, George Floyd's murder. So George Floyd became a tipping point for what had been a, a kind of ongoing, uh, developing almost critical mass of uh, disproportionate uh, targeting of African Americans, resulting also in, in the killing of African uh, Americans. This seems to uh, have been, uh, as I say, a, a kind of a galvanizing uh, moment. Uh, and I'm not sure this will abate as the others have. As I say, uh, the killing of James Garner that took place in, sorry, Eric Garner in 2014, he also uttered the words, I can't breathe. But you didn't have uh, the kind of uh, dramatic uh, video uh, evidence, uh, which, as I said, helped to uh, galvanize and, and, and mobilize. This is a defining moment, I believe, uh, in the American uh, political culture. And because it has a globality about it, uh, it may galvanize us here in Canada as well as we see protests uh, from coast to coast to coast in, in Canada, uh, raising the issue that killing has not taken place here, uh, but the fallout has uh, extended uh, to here because the same issues, the same demands for uh, equal justice, for equal protection of the laws, of equal treatment uh, under the law, uh, of the needs for justice and, and accountability. And you see the same slogans uh, in the streets here, not just Black Lives Matter, right. uh, but in fact, no justice, no peace. Justice. Mr. Cutler, what do we do, what do we say to the uh, to the police officers who really care, the really good ones, and there are many, well, who I, are very discouraged today, who themselves uh, just are, are, are saddened, are disheartened by what they saw happen to uh, Mr. George Floyd, who are speaking out, uh, but we also spoke with the president of the Canadian Police Association in the last hour, who told us retaining police officers is difficult now, and this is this this situation may make it for the good cops even more difficult to stay. I mean, what do we do about that? How do we handle policing? What would you say? I think we have to tell our, our you know our police officers um, really that uh, we value uh, their importance. Uh, they are the bulwark uh, for not only. Uh, law enforcement, that's sometimes a paradigm of the team, but also a, a service paradigm. They're the ones who uh, help out uh, dramatically. Uh, you know, in 2017, Toronto police responded to more than 27,000 uh, calls, and uh, there were zero deaths in 2017. So th that tells you uh, how much assistance and how much service and how much help uh, our police have been uh, giving. So we have to let them know that we value uh, their contribution and and the need uh, for their protection of, of uh, justice and security. And all this means when we're talking about now is the need for uh, oversight and uh, accountability. But that should not detract from the overall value uh, of our, our police. It just means that we have to uh, enhance our capacity in this as in everything else uh, for proper uh, accountability. So and we have about thirty seconds left. Where do you think we're going to be a year from now? Well, there's all the, that's all this. There's a galvanized action. There's, and you heard the uh, the reporter, our reporter, who's with the uh, group marching in Toronto. There's this galvanized action, and it's around the world. Um, where will we be a year from now? Will we have improved the situation? Do you think? Well, I, I hope we will. I hope we'll have a whole of government approach, federal, provincial, municipal, to make the combating of of uh, racial injustice and inequality a, uh, a priority. I hope that while as we value uh, our police and let them know that we'll have better uh, 
uh, police uh, training and oversight. I hope that we'll have a Okay. I think, are you still there? Okay, we're just losing your phone there. We were just losing your connection. Uh, Minister Cotler, I thank you very much for the time. Good for you to come back on the program. Thanks. Same here. Good speaking with you. Take care. All the best. Erwin Kotler, chair of the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, former federal minister of justice and attorney general. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 